I'm going to start off this episode by something that might be a little bit strange for a podcast, but I'm going to have you look at a picture. <laughs> Great. Good medium. And I'm going to have you describe it to us. Okay. So I'm looking at a picture of, it's quite dark. There are some uh, blobs that are kind of yellow and squiggly with redness in them. That's definitely a virus. I know that because of the darn coronavirus, which has the thing sticking out at the edge, hence ding, ding, corona. Ding, 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 ding. Um, is that coronavirus? You got it. So this is an actual image of coronavirus virions or particles because technically viruses aren't alive even though there's some debate about that we could go into that in a whole episode wouldn't she love to so we got i really would (laughs) so we call them particles virions they're about 80 to 120 nanometers in diameter so we're talking tiny and now like this picture we're looking at them with our eyeballs how beautiful, beautiful picture to give us even more of a sense of just how small this really is i spoke with hugh pennington and he's professor emeritus of bacteriology at the university of aberdeen and he's a total legend greg they're tiny 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 you know the diameter of a human hair hundreds of them would sort of go from one side of the hair to the other Yeah, that's kind of small. Yeah, just a little bit, just a wee bit small. So viruses come in a huge variety of shapes and sizes. Some of them are quite a bit bigger. Some of them are quite a bit smaller. But you cannot see any of them with the regular schmegular light microscope, like the one that you picture when you think microscope in a lab. And that's because the the size of the wave of the light is... (sighs) You're ahead of me here, Greg. You're uh, ahead of me already. (laughs) We're going to get there. So like when I'm looking at bacteria, like we were just saying, under a microscope in the lab, I can see them. They look like teeny tiny little rods or dots, but viruses are on the order of like a thousand times smaller than that. So how do we see them? How do we get images like this where we can actually see their structures? So just to confirm, when you look at a a bacteria, you are just using normal visible light? Just normal visible light. Gotcha. And magnification anywhere from 40 to 100 times. Okay. So this is the story of how we get to a picture like this. And it's the story of an extraordinary woman who pioneered these techniques and her extraordinary life and how we get to the first ever image of a coronavirus that we can actually see. Wicked. But first, you're listening to Surprisingly Brilliant. This is a science history podcast from Seeker that tells the stories of surprising yet brilliant discoveries, ideas, and people. I'm Greg Foote. And I'm Marin Hunsberger, and I am so excited to tell today's story. Right up your street. It really is. I can't help it. It's too exciting. So to begin at the beginning, as it were, very good place to start, we have to go back to 1930, when a girl named June Hart is born in a tenement building in Glasgow. That's in Scotland, it for is. anybody who doesn't know. And just as an aside, this will come in later, people in Glasgow have a very distinct Scottish accent. I will not try to replicate it here because I think that would be very offensive, but it's like super thick. It's like extreme Scottish Yeah, accent. I lived um, in Glasgow for a little bit, for like six months. Did it take you a while to get used to? Yeah. yeah. It's like watching The Wire, you know? <laughs> You've got to kind of like dial your ear into it. Yeah, you got to yeah. get used to it. Exactly. So her mom is a shop assistant. Her mom, as you guys would say. Her dad is a bus driver. So they're a pretty working class, low income family. And when June is 10, something really sad happens to their family. Her little brother, who is six, dies of diphtheria, which is a really terrible bacterial infection that 
targeted a lot of young children back then, which we now have a vaccine for, which is great. But this experience stays with her for the rest of her life. And so we'll see that thread kind of as we go along. By all accounts, as a young woman, she is a totally voracious reader. She just inhales anything thrown at her. Uh, She's incredible in school. She reads classics, fiction, nonfiction. She wins a bunch of prizes at school for science. And I spoke to Laura Marks, who is a visiting research fellow in the Department of Medicine at Cambridge. And she wrote quite an extensive biographical article on June. Jane always had an interest in science, and in fact at school she managed to win the prize for science as a very good student in that subject. She also had a very strong passion for photography and early on began taking photographs. You know what, this has got links to the Rosalind Franklin episode that we started this season off with. There is something crazy that we were going to get to in the middle of this episode that is going to blow your mind and is directly related to Rosalind Franklin. Oh, nice. Yeah, okay. Can't wait for that. So even though she's obviously extremely bright, extremely motivated, excelling in school, she can't afford to go to university and her family can't send her. So she has to leave school school at 16, with the equivalent of what in America would be like a GED, like a high school diploma. What we call a GCSE. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something like that. I think it's a different kind of certification at this time in the 40s, but yes. So she leaves school and she has to get a job to help her family out. And where does she get a job? Photography. Ah, go the other route. Uh... 16 years old, she just pops over to the Glasgow Royal Infirmary and says, hey, can I have a job, please? Wow. I do not think I would have had the wherewithal at 16 to just show up at a hospital and be like, hey, I'm good at science. Give me a job, please. What? Doing what? She's offering to look after people? Hey, I'll, I'll help with that surgery. <laughs> <laughs> I will let Lara explain. She managed to get an apprenticeship to become a lab technician in the Department of Histopathology. And that's where she got her technical training. And as a result of that apprenticeship, she got a salary of 25 shillings a week. Just for anyone who's interested, that's around 123 pounds or $160 in today's money per week. So like, you know, Gosh. really not a lot of like money. Five plus long days, I'm sure. Really a week. rough. And, you know, intensive time with this microscope, looking at tissue samples to see, you know, what might be wrong with the tissue, um, if there's any infection. So we're getting into, you know, microbiology, looking at things that are super, super tiny. But if she loves photography, she's going to adore that. Exactly. And this is what Lara has to say about that. In terms of working with the microscope, she loved taking pictures and trying to work out the good compositions. So that stood her in good stead for becoming a laboratory technician. So I think this is like such a cool example of these two skill sets melding. Like her interest in photography actually makes her way better at microscopy because she knows what to look for and she knows where in the picture, where in the field to find the bacteria. I don't know. This is actually kind of hard to express, but when you have a slide under a microscope, it's actually kind of hard to find what you're looking for. Like you have to scroll around, you have to adjust the focus. And so in bacteriology lab, which I just did a couple weeks ago, we often had people like, and I raise my hand quite often being like, can someone please help me with my microscope? I can't so find my bacteria. Right, yeah, it's like a needle in a haystack problem. <laughs> exactly, and um, it takes a lot of skill. Am I right in thinking it's um, it's not just two dimensions, right? You had to actually, even though the sample is, I don't know, squashed between glass or whatever it is, it's still three-dimensioned, hence going hunting in that uh, Z direction with the focus as well as the X and Y. With the focal length, exactly. And it's definitely not as three-dimensional as some of the microscopy techniques we have today. But there is a little bit of depth of field involved. um, But for the most part, we do smush things out flat, which actually causes some problems when we're looking at tissues because that's not how they are in the human body. Mm. Just fun fact. 
So she's getting all of this expertise. She's becoming a microscopy expert as a young woman. And Laura tells us what happens next. Following her training at Glasgow Royal Infirmary, she moved with her parents to London, where she started working as a lab technician at St. Bartholomew's Hospital, where she again was working in the histopathology department. She remained there until she got married in 1952, when she was 24 years old. She married a man who had come to England from Venezuela when he was a teenager. He was an artist and they shared a passion of music together. What kind of music do you know? She loved playing the recorder with her husband. I played the recorder as a kid. I know, me too. I was terrible. <laughs> this awful, awful sound. I played it in um, in like a school band. God, can you imagine having jamming. to go and listen to that? Absolutely oh, jamming. I'm sure she was much better than we were as, as kids, Greg. So she marries her artist, musician, husband, Enriquez Almeida, and she goes from being June Hart, Scottish lass, to June Almeida, which is how we know her for the rest of her life. Also, fun fact that I did not know until I was researching this episode. Don't ask me why. I went down a rabbit hole. <laughs> did you know that St. Bart's was founded in the 1100s? Wow. And it is a working hospital in London today and has been since then. Gosh, for over a thousand years. Isn't that insane? Whoa. And they kept pretty good records, which is one of the reasons why we know so much about the plague and what it did in London. God. Freaking cool. So after her training at St. Bart's, she's getting even more expertise in this area, getting some certifications in microscopy and identifying things under the microscope. She and Enriquez moved to Canada, which is where we get into some truly hot and heavy science grip. Are you ready? Oh, I'm always ready for some hot and heavy Heck science. Heck yeah. When Gina Meda arrived in Canada, she was hired as a technician and a research assistant to work with someone called Alan Howardson, an immunologist at the Ontario Cancer Institute. And she was very lucky to land up with uh, Alan Howard at that institution because it was just beginning to forge a reputation in electron microscopy. Yes. This is where we answer your question, Greg. All right, here we go. So we're getting back to this thing that you referred to at the very beginning, which is that a classic microscope, that one that we always think of when we picture a scientist at a lab bench, only uses visible light. So you shine light up from underneath at your sample, you look down at it through a series of magnifying lenses. And the problem that we have with visible light is we reach this thing called the limit of diffraction, which essentially means that the wavelength of visible light is too big to image things that are so-and-so small, like viruses. So it's anything that's, what, smaller than the size of one wave? Smaller than half the wavelength of a visible light. Oh, yeah, of a, okay, of a yeah because if you think of it, it goes up, down, and mm -hmm. then back up again, so it's smaller than that one hump or that mm -hmm. one dip, yeah. So instead, we need to use something that has a smaller wavelength. And just like photons can be both a particle and a wave, other particles also have this wave-particle duality. So electrons, I think we always think of as that outer shell of an atom, right? Right, little negatively charged uh, particle that's whizzing around the outside of an atom. You know, you've got the nucleus in the middle with a positive proton and the uh, neutral neutron. Uh, and these electrons are whizzing around and they can be in a shell, they can be in an energy field. Um, and yeah, it's the idea that they can be both a particle or a wave. Exactly. <laughs> It's so exciting. Physics blows my mind on the daily. So with an electron microscope, instead of shooting that beam of visible light at your sample, you shoot a beam of electrons 
at your sample. And then you can look at it. It's sort of focused down through this series of magnetic and focusing lenses. And then that beam of electrons sort of, for lack of a better term, bounces off your sample. And that change in the beam of electrons can give you an idea and a literal picture of the structure of whatever your sample is based on the change in the beam of electrons. That's phenomenal, Freaking mind-blowing. That is very, very, very cool. And especially at the beginning of this kind of microscopy, these are huge. They're they're gigantic machines. So we picture, you know, a, a microscope, regular light microscope, you know, about the size of, I don't know, like a coffee machine, a big one. And these electron microscopes are about the size of a room. <laughs> it's a bit ironic, isn't it? Um, that, you, that you need to use something smaller, right? So yeah. you go for electron waves, essentially. <laughs> and the thing increases exponentially yep. bigger. Yep. Because you have to add vacuums and things have to be cold. And because the particle is smaller, it's harder to control. It's charged. You've got to have a lot of extra stuff. Well, I mean, if you think about the LHC, Large Hadron Collider, right? That's <laughs> even smaller stuff, even bigger Even kit. bigger, like miles long. Oh <laughs> my God, you're rule. so right. Maybe that's a physics rule. I bet it is. We're probably just missing it. So this is where we come back to Rosalind Franklin. So you remember, uh, Greg, I'm sure you wrote and told me the story of Rosalind Franklin yeah. in the first episode of this season. And so one of the big revelations that we had in that was that Rosalind Franklin did other stuff after the whole double helix debacle, right? She went and on. And before. And yeah. before, of yeah, course. Yeah, if you haven't listened to that, we really enjoyed that. Very proud of that episode. So that go story. Back is listen. amazing. And it ties in with this because what does Rosalind Franklin go on to look at after her time on the double helix? Viruses. Yes. And starting, what virus? In, starting with TMV. Which is? Tobacco mosaic virus. And guess what virus was the first ever to be visualized under an electron microscope? Was Greg? it that? It was, it was ah, TMV. She was the first to kind of uh, work out the structure of TMV. Using her x-ray crystallography skills, but she's also working in conjunction with data gathered from electron microscopes and being able to see this virus under the, under the electron Good microscope. Connection. So that like totally ties us in here. That blew my mind. So the first electron microscope is invented back in 1931. And 25 years later, it's 1956, that's when June arrives in Canada to do this work. So this is very much still an emerging technology. People are still finessing it, still figuring out how best to use it. And she arrives in Canada, she's only ever worked with light microscopes. She has never worked with an electron microscope. And she's not had any formal training. Which is, you know, what's so cool about this is learn on the job. Not yet. Exactly. And this is one of many traits that we'll come to know June by is this willingness to adapt and be like, yeah, OK, sure. let's try it. Give me a go. <laughs> and if you can picture, I think we often in our computer digital age think that like, oh, you just look at it through your lenses and then it shows up on your computer screen and you have the image and you can mm. save it and you can send it to people. But obviously in the 50s, that's not where we're at. It was done by ordinary photographic plates. June was very good at knowing exactly which part of the image to take a picture of and how to prepare it so that it was good for the publication and justified the conclusions she was drawing. That's a whole other level, isn't it? Because tricky enough to take a normal visible light picture on photographic plates. Yes. Or indeed, you know, as we heard in the Rosalind Franklin episode, with x-rays. Yes. Um, with electrons, photographing essentially imaging something you can't see. Wow. Adds this whole level of skill and difficulty. And again, I think this comes back to her artistic eye of like knowing what angle, basically. Like what are the best, what's the best side of this virus? What are the good shots of this virus? So that you can actually see what you're trying to see and get the conclusions and have it be accepted in a paper and things like that. And so this is like just a confluence of kind of chance 
things that happen. Her husband happens to want to move to Canada because he doesn't have a very good time in London. This position in electron microscopy just happens to be the only one open for any kind of microscopist when June arrives. The fact that the field is still relatively new and the technology is still being developed, all of these kind of chance events or chance choices, chance moments, end up changing the entire course of her life, her career, and changes the understanding we have today of some really important viruses. I remember this um, Steve Jobs quote that's something about um, connecting the dots. You can't do it when you look forward, but you can do it when you look back, Mm -hmm. um, which often makes us see things like this as like, God, that was so lucky. And that was so lucky. It was chance, chance, chance. But, you know, it's just it was just the way that, you know, the opportunities she had, right, luck, just the place she was, time she was, um, but she made the most of it, it sounds She like. made the most of it, right? So the dots can all be there, but you have to be able to put them together. And boy, did she. And we're going to hear about it right after our first break. And we're back. You're listening to Surprisingly Brilliant, and we are in the 50s and 60s in Ontario with June Almeida, who is very fast learning, along with all of those around her, that she is, in fact, very skilled at electron microscopy. And here's Hugh. She had green fingers. Whatever she did at electron microscopy worked, and she did things in electron microscope. People said, you couldn't do that. That won't work. She said, oh, come on, and did it, and it worked. She'd already, by the strength of her personality and the quality of her work, made herself indispensable. She was so talented at doing it that she'd already basically stood out from the ordinary sort of folk doing that kind of ordinary work. And a lot of people were doing electron microscopy, but she was one of the few. I can't recall any other women electron microscopists. When Hugh started that by saying she had green fingers, um, that's a phrase for when, you know, someone does a lot of gardening. I know. (laughs) And I was like, don't tell me she was also like an amazing botanist and horticulturalist as well. (laughs) Growing secretly in this dark electron microscopy room, plants that grow without sunlight. No, apparently they just like totally appropriated that term to describe the fact that she could make these images appear seemingly out of nowhere. She could always find. She could conjure an image up, even though her contemporaries, which sounded like they were pretty much all men. uh, She was like, you know, one step ahead. Exactly. And one of her colleagues at the time, speaking about her work retrospectively, did, I think, a really good job of illustrating just how hard this job is. And he said, it took attention to detail, not just with the eyes, but also preparing the materials. Everything had to be exactly right. Attention to detail, patience and persistence. June Almeida had those qualities in spades. It's a big part of being a cracking scientist, isn't Persistence, it? man. I I say all the time, especially now that I'm doing more hardcore science, that being a scientist doesn't automatically make you smart. It just makes you persistent. Yeah, I mean, a lot of friends of mine who, you know, are in the lab or have been in the lab and they, you know, you just have to titrate or pipette something oh thousands God. and thousands of times a day for days and days and days. Over and over again. So she has this in spades, as her colleague says, and three huge things happen for science and for June during her time in Canada that she is contributing to significantly. And here's Lara to tell us about very important, I'm calling them very important contributions, (laughs) V-I-Cs. Very important contribution. Hi, this is surprisingly brilliant, where Marin and Greg learn to spell. Listen. I was doing the same. I was just staring into this and going, V-I-P-C? I wanted to say MP. God, oh, that was so sad. <laughs> when she started working at the Ontario Cancer Institute, she became involved in very important research that established the link between viruses and cancer. Before that, that link was not really established. 
it was really her imaging using the electron microscope that helped establish that relationship. And it was on the back of her work that the Institute built its reputation in the area of viruses and cancer. Hmm. So this was actually a huge deal, because even though this may kind of be relatively common knowledge now, before this moment, we had no idea that there were some viruses that could be classified as possible carcinogens or viruses that could be causative agents of cancer, increasing your risk of cancer. I'm trying to think of one... It's HPV. Yes, exactly. So HPV, human papillomavirus, that increases your risk of some urogenital cancers. There's also Epstein-Barr virus, which can increase your risk of some kinds of lymphoma. And we're still exploring it. And it starts with this work at the Ontario Cancer Institute. And the images that June takes of viruses interacting with host cells helps us understand that there is a link, that there is causality. And during this time, she's doing this incredibly important work. She also seems to really fall in love with electron microscopy. Throughout her career, June seems to really really, really love what she does. She's incredibly passionate. And she actually includes, this is so cute, an ode to the art of doing this work at the beginning of one of her scientific papers. It's a version of William Blake's poem, Tiger, Tiger, Burning Bright. And I'll have you, Greg, read June's version. Okay. All right. Here we go. (laughs) Virus, virus, shining bright in the phosphor tongue stick night, what immortal hand or eye dare frame thy five-fold symmetry? Yeah, the rhyming doesn't quite get there at the end, but I love that. You know, she's so passionate about this that she feels the need to put it into words in poetry. She's a big, like, science and art person, right? Like, the photography, the art stuff, and obviously her partner into the music Mm -hmm. as well. All of her science and her microscopy and our poetry. Exactly. She's bringing it all together. She's a very holistic kind of lady. And all of this work blossoms into very important contribution number two. VIC number two, Claxon. The other thing that was important about her work in Canada was that through her images, she allowed for a classification system to be devised to group viruses, which couldn't be done before. So this is incredibly cool. We now have a lot of different ways to classify viruses and we classify them not just based on what they look like. So that's called their morphology, their structure, their shape. We don't just classify them based on morphology anymore, but this is the foundation for some of the classification systems for viruses that we still use today. So she's the one who's like, I'm taking all these pictures. Let's see which ones fall into groups. So does she come up with the classification system as well? Or is it is the key that like her amazing imagery helps people realize that virus linked to she cancer comes up and with the, classification. the classification system? She draws Does the tree, she? I mean, ba- and, and based on her images. So this is very much so the bedrock of like modern virology. Wow, cool. So as well as being an amazing imager, she's also organizing a taxonomy of the things that she's photoing. So we're seeing this growth of her from just, you know, a microscopist in a lab, she's being handed tissue samples, look at it, tell us what you see, into being a scientist, being a scientific thinker, thinking more broadly about big questions and big problems. And I asked Hugh to tell us more specifically what is quite so groundbreaking about actually being able to see these viruses and their structures. It was very important because at the time when June was doing this work, virology was in a kind of golden age because we were looking at different viruses and seeing they had different shapes, different sizes, different structures, and you could classify viruses, and they still do classify viruses on the basis of their appearance. 
in an electron microscope. And they're also quite important in terms of diagnostics as well. So, for example, if you have a disease that's incredibly fast moving and it's caused by some kind of microbial particle, or maybe it's of super high concern, you may not have time for some of these other diagnostic tests that take a really long time. And so looking at it under an electron microscope to see what it actually looks like can actually help you understand what it is and make sure that patient gets the help they need as fast as they need it. Yeah, and she did the framework that allowed that to be done quickly. Exactly, especially in this era before we have really rapid genetic sequencing. So she's helped establish the link between viruses and cancer. She's helped start to develop a classification system for viruses and what they look like under the microscope. And the third thing- There's more. Very important contribution number three, this is our last from her time in Canada, is huge and perhaps the one that has the longest lasting effects into today. And it's a technique called immune electron microscopy or IEM. Basically, you have the virus, which you've grown often in a test tube, and there won't be very much virus there. And it'll be scattered among the background of all sorts of rubbish and so on. So you want to really focus it or to make it focus itself so that when you put in an electron microscope, you see rafts of virus. Yeah, so antibodies are essentially your body's patrol system, part mm. of your immune system that helps get the bad guys out, essentially. And they'll stick to viruses, microbes, whatever, to tag them for destruction. And antibodies have this really cool Y shape. So even though they're as small as or smaller than viruses, they have multiple points on their body, for lack of a better word, where they can hold on to stuff, like multiple sticky parts where they can latch on to things that they're supposed to bind to. And what the antibodies do is they stick to the surface of the virus, and because antibodies have got more than one sticky bit, they join the virus particles together. So you get a whole raft of viruses all joined together, and, you know, it's as simple as that. As simple as that. Yeah, I know. Sure. He makes it sound right. real Antibodies easy. Antibodies stick to a virus, stick the viruses together, image that. Exactly. And so if you do this in a tissue sample, you get antibodies just covered in the virus that you're looking for that's in that tissue sample because that's what antibodies do in your body. They gather the bad stuff. So instead of having to sort through all this rubbish, like hunting for a virus somewhere in your tissue sample, you add antibodies and then you get these beautiful clumps of exactly what you're looking for. And so they're so much easier to find an right. image. So you don't have to like look around that sample for ages you know you in the lab being like excuse me where's my sample yep. like you can just look for this lump of bigger antibodies yeah essentially it's just a hugely more efficient and useful way to use this incredible piece of technology the electron microscope to help us understand viruses and she doesn't come up with IEM she doesn't invent this technique but she's the one who sees it and says this we need to be doing we all need to be doing this this is incredibly useful she popularizes it she finesses it she makes it more usable and she's really freaking good at it she seems pretty freaking good at a lot of things yeah, and with great. no like formal background in it exactly i mean remember she has just finished you know she left school 16? at 16 yeah and she has microscopy certification she's been working for a long time but you know she's not officially quote-unquote educated this is what you call craft knowledge yes. right this ability to like learn so much in doing and a lot of the sources about her life intimate that her time in canada is really essential because canada's way less hung up than London and England in general is, especially at this time in her life, on what degree did you get from where? And, oh, no, you can't come work here. You don't have a degree from Oxbridge. You know, so Canada is this place where she really can flourish and can become respected without necessarily this official hierarchy of education backing her. But Canada is not where June's contributions end. Not 
by a long shot. And we'll get into all of the other incredibly important ways that we still feel her presence very much so today, especially during the current coronavirus pandemic, right after this short break. So we're back. And June has become incredibly skilled during her time in Canada. And she's made herself, as Hugh puts it, totally indispensable. She's made such a name for herself that she actually gets recruited to come back to London to St. Thomas's Hospital Medical School. And this is where she meets Hugh, our expert. Really? Hugh Pennington. Yes, he knew her. Huh. He saw June at work and knew her personally and has some amazing stories to tell about June. And I felt so lucky to have gotten to speak to him. Yeah. Well, um, June had a powerful personality. She was quite small, a person, you know, physically, but she wasn't small intellectually and she wasn't small in her personality. She was one of my most important mentors in how you ask questions. And if you're frustrated about getting the answer, well, move on to something else. What was Hugh's uh, relationship to June? They worked on different things. Uh, so he was working on different kinds of viruses, but they worked often together on some experiments. Um, I think he used her electron microscopy skills in many of his experiments and trying to understand his viruses. And they were part of the same team at St. Thomas's. So he tells me these fantastic stories I bet. about June with her thick Glaswegian accent, <laughs> really ruling the electron microscopy roost at St. Thomas's. So if you can picture like huge, huge, huge instruments, they cost about as much as a house did back in those days, right? Incredibly expensive. They still are. And when she very first arrived, her department actually didn't have an electron microscope. She shows up and they're like, we're buying it. It's coming. <laughs> <laughs> and she's so raring to go. She's like, I'm not going to wait to start doing this work that I love. So she sort of sneaks in to use the electron microscope of another department while the head of that department is gone. Well played, June. And he was there and he watched this all go down. <laughs> so June went to use his electron microscope. And he was very angry. And uh, June sort of gave him two fingers, you know, and <laughs> and got away with it. And I think he was a little bit more angry with her than he would have been otherwise, because he used to work in the same hospital in Glasgow that June started her work just as a humble laboratory assistant. And here she was, queen of the electron microscope, using his precious machine when he wasn't there. And I mean, they settled our argument. There was no problem about it. But that just shows how you have to fight your corner. It's what they say. Be nice to people on the way up because you'll meet them on the way down. Yep. Right? And there she is. Humble tech. And now she's... She's made her way on up. Yeah. Queen of the electron microscope. So she does eventually get her own microscope. And there's another funny story where... They're working in a lab on the banks of the Thames, and there's this fear that the Thames is going to flood. And June has this whole huge panic because her uh, instrument is in the basement, as they often are, to protect them from radiation. And she's like sandbagging the doors, and it's, you know, it's like her basically her child in a way. Even though she does actually have a biological child of her own, in addition to her electron microscope, she has a daughter when she's in Canada. And when they come back to London, she and her husband actually get divorced, and he moves back to Canada because he likes it there. And she becomes a single mother to their daughter. And even though she has help from her parents who also live in London, you know, she has to balance this incredibly prolific research career with multiple papers where she becomes the first author with being a mom and her passions on the side. And she, from all accounts, never really speaks about this publicly, any kind of trying to make this work, this balance. But we talk about that a lot 
today when talking yeah, about that must have been a that must have been a real challenge time wise huge. you know energy wise and probably one that none of her male colleagues really had to deal with if they had caregivers at home for their children yeah so june eventually gets her own microscope at st thomas's and she starts doing the work that will really define the next phase of her career but before i tell you what that work is i also have to tell you about something called the common cold research unit and this is truly wild. It's a makeshift research hospital of sorts out in Salisbury, which is here in the UK. And it's dedicated to it's finding- where Stonehenge is, by the way. Oh, yeah. yeah, you know a lot more about UK geography than I do. That's where it is, yes. I totally knew that. Um, and the research there is dedicated to trying to find a cure for the common cold, trying to understand the common cold and trying to see what we can do about it. Spoiler alert. Yeah, we kind of we all knew how that one turned out, but how we get there is crazy because as an ordinary citizen, you could volunteer to basically just go on holiday. They offered you free food, accommodation, some pocket money, like a daily stipend, and a nice little jaunt to the countryside. Hmm. And the only downside is that while you were there, researchers would try to infect you with the common cold and they would take samples from you. Oh, I mean, that's a pretty snotty downside. You know how <laughs> gross you feel when you've got a proper bad cold. Quite literally. This is actually a headline for one of the um, advertisements for this program. I'm going to have you read it, Greg. Free 10-day autumn or winter break. You may not win a Nobel Prize, but you could help find a cure for the common cold. What a selling point, right? <laughs> Come on down. <laughs> Join the snotcation. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. And you know, it's so funny because they have some pretty fun photographs and like records from what they did in that time. Obviously, this what was it just like rows of beds and boxes of tissues. Have people got their their own rooms, but they have like board games, card games, right? This is in the 1950s and because 60s. they want them to get the cold, right? Yes, it's not like they want to isolate them. Yes, I mean they're deliberately a, a, trying to infect them with the cold. They're like dropping, you know, fluids in, into their faces. But it, we have some interesting records that a lot of people got quite bored on their 10-day uh, autumn or winter vacation because they're like scratching things into desks and like... Try Ugh. quarantine and lockdown, folks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Actually, that's such a good point. I hadn't even thought about that. And as these researchers were exploring the common cold, what it is, how it's transmitted, they were starting to discover that actually the common cold is caused by a number of different viruses. It's not just caused by one. And in 1967, researchers at this common cold research unit, they come across some strains of virus that they haven't seen before. It grows in tissue culture in this weird way that they don't recognize. So they send some samples down to St. Thomas's where June and the group she's part of start to explore what they might be. And June looks at it under a microscope and lo and behold, what does she see? But a little ball with some spikes on it. Oh, it's a coronavirus. It's a coronavirus, exactly. So June and her colleagues, after much deliberation, they do determine that it is a new kind of virus that they have seen before in non-human animals, but this version is clearly infecting humans. Huh. We should actually say at this point, and tell me if I'm wrong, because this is more your bag than mine, uh, that the coronavirus that's affecting us right now, although we say it's the coronavirus, is a coronavirus, right? Like a coronavirus is a family of exactly. a bunch of different viruses. And, and the current coronavirus, COVID-19, is one type of that coronavirus. I am so glad you brought this up, Greg. That's exactly what I was about to say, is that we refer to this right now as coronavirus. But there are so many different kinds. It's a whole family. But they all share this characteristic 
look, this ball and stick kind of look. And June and her, yes, June and her colleagues are the ones who name it coronavirus because the things sticking off of it look like a halo or a crown, and corona means crown in Latin. So this is the first example of a coronavirus infecting humans. And at this point, right, from our modern perspective, we can be like, coronaviruses are incredibly important. But at the time, they were excited to have discovered and named a new kind of virus, but they were like, well, it doesn't cause very serious disease. It just causes some of the common cold. So... All right, I guess we'll put that in the bank. Little did they know that a, did they know. a few mutations later and it would be bringing the world to its heels. Different strains from different places. It's so interesting how they can be related and yet cause such different diseases. So the common coronavirus or several different kinds of a coronavirus can cause the common cold. The common cold can also be caused by other viruses. But what do they do with this information? How do they try to tell the world? And Hugh tells us what happens. She'd seen the coronavirus, you know, the very familiar round virus with the spikes with the knobs on. And she tried to publish it and the, the, the paper was thrown out because they said, oh, these are just very bad electron microscope pictures of something like influenza virus. I'm sorry, but June Almeida does not take bad electron Thank photos. Thank you. Do you not yes. know June? Greg, come to her defense. Come Love on. this. I've converted you already. We're, we're on June's side and so is Hugh. <laughs> So June was right. It just shows that science sometimes staggers along a little bit and you have to have the confidence, which she had. And then she saw these viruses from these volunteers who had colds and, and that was how coronaviruses were discovered causing human illnesses and basically put them on the map. So yeah, June was right, as we know. And so she and her colleagues persist. They take better electron microscope photos of coronavirus and they publish eventually it gets accepted people recognize that these are coronaviruses these are new they cause disease in humans hooray right so hold up not only does she take images that shows that viruses are linked to cancer not only does she kind of set up a classification system right but she also takes the first images of coronavirus showing that it causes cold-like symptoms yep Wow. You got it, dude. And I mean, this isn't, that's not the end. <laughs> <laughs> really? What? It's maybe what she is most well known for, which is what Laura says. Today, June Almeida is best known for the images that she took of the human coronavirus. But in fact, she was instrumental in taking the first images of the rubella virus and was also important in working out the hepatitis B virus and how it infects human cells. That was very important for the development of the hepatitis B vaccine. Yeah, she didn't do much really, did she? Nah, just a casually not busy person at all. And keep in mind, she's like publishing, she has a kid, she gets married again. She's like super passionate still about her photography, her art. She's amazing. Yeah, it's mega impressive. Greg, I love her. And we don't, I, I think it's, it's hard to understand that at the time, coronaviruses weren't a very big deal. And it's not until... 2003, when we get the big SARS outbreak, that we go back, all the way back to June Almeida's original work. To Am I right in thinking that uh, SARS is a type of coronavirus? Exactly, yes. So SARS was an outbreak of a really serious disease, uh, sudden acute respiratory syndrome. It is caused by a coronavirus, uh, and it's a different coronavirus than the one causing the COVID-19 pandemic today. So they're both coronaviruses related in the same family, but slightly different viruses. So when that SARS outbreak happens, that's when we come back to June Almeida's work, understanding of coronaviruses, those photos that were taken. That's when we understand that SARS is caused by a coronavirus and when we understand that, oh crap, these are important and more important than just the common cold. Understatement of 2020? Yeah. 
one could say. But it's not just coronavirus. She goes on to help us understand, as Laura says, rubella, which is a really important virus that was making a lot of people really sick in the 60s when she's working on it. We now have a vaccine and that's great, but her images helped pave the way to a better understanding of how it works within our immune system. Same thing goes for hepatitis B, pretty freaking nasty virus, and her pictures of it helped us identify the things on the outside of it that help us make a vaccine. So help your body bind to it and get rid of it and have immunity to it. And I think this last little nugget about June's life really speaks volumes about her that we already know, but it really brings it home. She's actually been retired for a couple of years. She retires really early because her second husband gets quite sick at the end of his life. And unfortunately he passes away and Hugh knew her during this time and spent a lot of time with her and says that she had very quirky tastes in art and furniture. She shared tunes with Hugh and his wife all the time. She helped them decorate their house. And then right at the end of her career, She'd given up doing virology. I think she got a little, well, she retired. You know, she moved on to other things. She became a yoga expert and she ran a, an antique shop. But then she came back to St. Thomas's and did some work on HIV and was one of the first people to see HIV under the electron microscope as well, which again was really important work. Whoa. Doesn't stop coming, my dear. Whoa, whoa, whoa. A bit of HIV. Yeah, just, just. <laughs> Just round out the career with some HIV and being a yogi. <laughs> the thing is, though, once you've got that skill set, once you're really good at doing something like imaging, the fact is, is that you can apply it to all these different areas, right? Exactly, and it shows the importance of, as as Hugh says, he, he talks about uh, chance favoring the prepared mind. And June wasn't just this expert at this sort of technical art of electron microscopy. She knew what fields to put her effort into. She knew what questions were gonna be big next. She knew how to stand up for her work. She knew how to pursue lines of thinking that were gonna be big questions in the field. And something else that Hugh told me is that, you know, aside from all of the things that we've talked about so far today, Greg, one piece of June's lasting legacy is that a lot of her electron microscope photographs are still in textbooks today. Like they're in my virology textbook and it'll say credit to June Almeida at the bottom because she took these incredible photos that help us understand what is happening at this incredibly small scale. That's really cool. So we have seen June throughout this story go from a precocious girl in Glasgow who can't afford to go to university to becoming the queen of electron microscopy. She gave us one of the best techniques for using the electron microscope, that's immune electron microscopy. She laid the foundations for classifying viruses. She provided evidence for the link between viruses and cancer, gave us images of rubella, hepatitis B, HIV, and of course, the first human coronavirus. What a story, what a life. What a career, what a contribution. I doff my cap, or maybe even better, I should get a crown. Your I corona. Doff, I doff my crown <laughs> <laughs> to June Almeida. Thank you so much for listening to today's story, Greg. And thank you so much to today's experts. That's Professor Emeritus Hugh Pennington and Professor Laura Marks. Uh, Laura actually has the website where she published her biographical article on June Almeida. It's called whatisbiotechnology.org. You can go to that website, which we'll leave in the show notes, and you can see beautiful photographs from June's life uh, from Glasgow to the very end in her work in HIV. Um, Hugh Pennington has also been really vocal and outspoken during the coronavirus pandemic. And so if you're interested 
interested in hearing what Hugh has to say about public health measures, I encourage you to check it out. I think he has really interesting things to say. Hmm. And if you want any more information on our experts or the sources that we used to put this episode together, you can find all of that in the show notes as well. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do rate and review it wherever you get your podcasts. It would mean a whole load if you could. Thanks so much. And please do spread the word about Surprisingly Brilliant to your mom, your dad, your dog, your friends, anyone you think may enjoy this episode or the others in this season. Loads there for you to go back and listen to all of season one as well. More episodes on the way. Um, If you've got a story from science history that you would like us to tell or a discovery or an invention that you'd like to know the story behind, you can get in touch. Email us brilliant at seeker.com. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your platform of choice. And if you want to get in touch with us on social media, sitting across from me is Greg Foote, who is Greg Foote on Twitter and Instagram. Yeah. And uh, this lady here is Marin Hunsberger at Marin B on Instagram and at Marin Hunsberger on Twitter. Surprisingly Brilliant is a podcast from Seeker. This episode was written by me, Marin Hunsberger. My co-host is Greg Foote. And our producer for this episode was the brilliant Sylvia Lanzaris. It was edited by Lucas Bollinger. We had production support from the team at Seeker, including Emily Feld and Navani Otero. And the show's executive producers are me, Marin, Brian Pendergast, Brett Kushner, and Mangesh Hatagadu. You can find out more about Seeker at Seeker.com, and we'll chat to you next time. See ya.